0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemersGF.com. So, we're in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, and we are starting our series now um, on the Passion. We're focusing on Easter. We're just about a month away from Easter, so we wanted to take the next four Sundays. And really walk through the passion narrative. The passion uh, is the last, the final week of Jesus's life on earth. And, and, and it all really happens within the city of Jerusalem. And so I was thinking about this passage in particular. Uh, you'll see it entitled in your, in your Bible as the, the triumphal entry. If you've ever watched a movie and you knew that this movie was an exceptional story. But you knew it ultimately had a tragic turn. No matter how many times you watch that movie, you always think to yourself, why does it have to end this way? Why does it have to end this way? And you always wish that maybe the plot could magically change and the outcome would maybe be different. And so I think this every time that I watch the movie Braveheart. Every single time. I cannot tell you how many times I've watched the movie Uh, especially in college. This was the movie that I watched all the time. I fell asleep to, I woke up to, and I hated knowing every single time what was going to come of William Wallace. I knew how his story was going to end. It always bothered me. It always made my stomach turn, but I could not seem to stop watching the movie. And you kind of have that same feeling in your stomach, or I do anyways, when it comes to Easter. Nobody's just lining up to watch the Passion movie over and over again, but yet it it draws us in. We know what the outcome is going to be. We understand the pain. We understand the suffering. We understand the death that is coming. But sometimes we just ask ourselves, is it possible that the plot could change with the same outcome? Does Jesus really have to die? Does he really have to endure the cross? Does he really have to be punished in that kind of way? And the answer to that is this. That there is no other possible way for salvation to be attained for sinners than through the sacrificial blood of Jesus. Jesus had to get to the cross. Jesus had to die. And so we read the Easter story anticipating or not anticipating the cross, but anticipating the resurrection. That's usually what we are drawn to Easter for. But it's in the cross that we see God redeem his people. Jesus's approach to the cross is really critical and it's necessary. And while we want to really kind of turn and look away, Jesus faithfully and obediently looks ahead to Jerusalem, to the cross. And so his life and ministry at this point in the book of Matthew are really coming to an end. And so let me read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, so Jesus is really uh, descending into the city of Jerusalem, and he comes to the Mount of Olives, and this resides just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And so, this story of Jesus coming to Jerusalem is known in church history as Palm Sunday, and that's what we're gonna we're gonna recognize it as. And this is in the final week of what we know as the Passion Week, and so the name Passion is accurate because. Passion is exactly what rightly describes the motivation behind Jesus's pursuit of the cross. Jesus will soon face death. He'll face the cross. He'll face the ugliness of sin. And not because he's a victim, but because he's extremely passionate to save sinners. And so here he comes into Jerusalem, this holy city, the capital city. This is the Lord's city. It's a city set apart for God's namesake to the nations. This city is the city where kings and prophets and God's people came to worship God. This is a city where the temple was built, where God dwelt among his people. The city used to be full of worship, God's word, righteous living. But just like humanity took a wrong turn in the garden. So we see that God's people took wrong turns in the history of this great city, Jerusalem. The beauty and purpose of Jerusalem went from holy, the place of God's dwelling, to pagan practices, false worship, hostile takeover, destruction, a rebuilding, and ultimately a deep, deep longing for God to come and bring his people back to himself to restore again what was lost in the city. And this is exactly what God has come to do. That's what we see in the story of Christ in the gospel. He comes to rescue his people from the bondage of sin and then bring them back to himself. And so we continue on. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. And so this, this prophecy comes from the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah towards the end of the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Zechariah, along with Haggai, are prophets during the same time period in the life of Israel. Both prophets are ministering to the people of Israel during a time where they are returning from exile from the Babylonians. Haggai, one prophet, he rebukes Israel from getting lazy in their attempt to rebuild the temple. He gets frustrated that ultimately the Israelites are dwelling in really nice houses, but the house of God is lying in ruins. Whereas the prophet Zechariah rebukes Israel for breaking relational covenant with God. They end up looking more like their forefathers who betrayed their God, as opposed to a people who have been delivered and brought back to the city of God. And so both of these prophets together reveal the deep rooted problem with the ancient city of Jerusalem. Both people, both prophets call the people of Israel to repentance. And though God has delivered Israel from their captors and brought them back to the land, to the city, they still lack in worship and they still lack in covenantal relationship with God and with one another. And so Zechariah's book contains a prophecy about a Messiah who would come and perfectly restore Israel in their covenant relationship to God. And this Messiah would come in a not so ordinary way. And so let me read to you. Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 through 13 you don't need to turn there just listen as I read rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the full of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So we have this picture of a coming king, and he comes in verse 9 with righteousness. He comes with salvation. He comes with humility. He comes saddled on a donkey. And so this is the picture that Zechariah gives to a people who have lost covenantal relationship with their God. And then about 500 years time will pass from the time of Zechariah's prophecy to the coming of Jesus. And so for 500 years, there's essentially silence. There's there's nothing going on. And these are just words on paper to the people. But then Jesus comes and he shows up. And he comes with righteousness. He comes with salvation in his hand. And he comes with humility. So before there's victory in the resurrection, there is ultimately judgment on the cross. Jesus not only comes as the judge, but he comes as the one judged on behalf of his people. I don't know if you heard me right. He comes as the judge, but he comes also as the one who is judged on behalf of his people. In the courtroom of God, Jesus was found guilty of our sin when he chose to die on the cross. When Jesus makes it to the cross, here's what happens. The father in his full wrath and fury, he will pour out his red hot, holy anger upon his son, Jesus. That means all the anger that God felt in the time of Zechariah, in the time of Haggai, all the anger towards Israel for their pagan worship for their covenant breaking, for all their lies, for their theft, their blasphemy, their adultery, their idolatry, all of it completely placed on Jesus. This is the reason Jesus comes to to Jerusalem to receive punishment that was meant for sinners. And so through the cross, Jesus would perfect the sinner's worship, and he would perfect the sinner's covenantal relationship with God and ultimately with his people. So think about this for a moment. If you had to stand before God right now without Jesus on your side, what would the judgment be? What would God hold against you in the courtroom? Ancient Israel was lacking worship and they were lacking relationship with God. What would be your offense? And so I want to, that's a, that's a heavy, those are loaded questions, if you will. They're, they're heavy questions, but I want to counter those questions. Now, understanding that Jesus is standing on your side. Jesus loves you. Those who are in Christ will never face that judgment. Those who are in Christ no longer have condemnation, no longer have guilt, no longer have shame. So Jesus came then to show the world that God is ultimately just and the justifier. Meaning God will not let sin go unpunished. God's not just going to turn a blind eye to sin. He's not going to turn a deaf ear to sin. He's not going to just let it go because he's holy, because he's perfect. But at the same time, he's also going to take the punishment, not out on you and me, but he's going to take it out on his son, Jesus. And that is the hope for those of us who are in Christ. And that is what justifies us before God. And so, church, Jesus came to earth in all righteousness with the power to give salvation. And he did it all with humility. Jesus chose to give himself for you, for me. He did not come to go to war with you or me, but he came to make you and me his allies, his friends. He came lowly, saddled on a donkey, making his way to the cross to pay for our sins. So to those who are self-condemning or self-deprecating in your thinking, your Jesus is showing you that you cannot be too low for him to lift you up. And for those of you who are proud and you're sitting up high on your high horse, Jesus is not so low that he cannot reach up to save. So come down to the humble Savior. And so there's, there's reason to rejoice church. And there's reason because the son of David has come. Let's read this in verse six. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The crowd here seems to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, recognizing him as the king promised to David's offspring. And we've seen that in Second Samuel 7. The crowd sees Jesus coming into Jerusalem just as foretold. And then they begin to shout Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in its word and its original meaning was God save us. But over time, by the time it hit the first century, it took on the meaning of praise to the Lord. So Hosanna in simple terms is just praising the Lord. And so here's the crowd seeing Jesus come in. Maybe they're picturing this prophecy from Zechariah and they're seeing it come to fulfillment. And so they're excited because the Messiah is here. The king is here. But there's a misunderstanding. Ultimately, there's a misunderstanding on how they're viewing this king and how they're viewing this Messiah, because this entry when they come in, they are laying down their cloaks, they're laying down the palm branches, and it's conveying really a celebration and an honor. And it's even reminiscent of kings and sergeants coming in after having (laughs) victory in the battle. But little does the crowd realize there will be no celebration to follow Jesus when they come into Jerusalem. If you follow the story closely, the next scene is Jesus really cracking the whip in the temple because the people were making a mockery of God and his worship. And so then some of this seemingly excited crowd who's sitting here shouting Hosanna to the son of David and uh, you know, Hosanna in the highest will soon be shouting crucify him. We know some of them will be doing that because in their mind they're thinking, what Messiah comes into Jerusalem and endures suffering and endures punishment? That's no Messiah at all. If you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the movie's way better than the book. That's because I've never read the book. But during the Winter Revolution, the white witch tricked Edmund into serving her by having him betray his siblings. And he betrays his siblings, and by Narnia's law, he now belonged to her as her lawful prey. He was enslaved to the witch. Then Aslan, king of Narnia, he speaks to the white witch in private, offering himself in, in Edmund's place. The witch then accepts the offer and Aslan willingly traveled to what is known as the stone table and offered himself as a sacrifice in Edmundstead. So little would the white witch know or understand that Aslan would not release, would not just release Edmund as a prisoner, but he would also not be held by the grave Aslin overcomes death and he makes haste to the war that was set on his people. Aslan humbly walking to the stone table to be sacrificed reminds us of the humble approach Jesus took on his way to the cross. Jesus as displayed with Aslan is the line of Judah coming in full power with full authority with full dominion in all of his power. Jesus comes then in a posture of humility. He lays it all aside to give up his life. And Satan, like the white witch, sees Jesus coming into Jerusalem, surrendering his power by coming in, not on a white horse with power, but saddled on a donkey and doing so as a willing sacrifice. Satan may seize the opportunity to help Jesus make it to the cross, but we have to be rest assured that the motivation for Jesus going to the cross is not the same as Satan's motivation. And so what is Jesus really accomplishing by showing up on a donkey? He does not show up to Jerusalem, squaring up to his opponents, trying to go fist to cuffs, ready to throw down. Jesus walks up to his enemies saying, take me. He does this with the intent of winning over the hearts of his enemies And you see the crowd who is shouting Hosanna may be the same crowd who shouts crucify. And so their hearts like Edmund to the white witch have become enslaved. Jesus comes to win them over. To make them allies. And he plans to do so by paying for their sins at the cost of his own blood, not theirs. And it'll be this act of humility that leads Jesus to raising up ultimately an army that numbers more than the stars in the sky, more than the sand of the seashore. And we see that in the book of Revelation. I came across a man the other day who was not doing well at all. Uh, He was depressed. He was extremely angry and he was completely drunk. Um, He was looking for a fight and he saw me as a possible outlet for his anger and so he, he was grinding his teeth and he had his fist clenched. He was literally white knuckling. And while he was doing that, I placed my hand on his shoulder like he was a good friend of mine, like I've known him for years. And I began to ask him how he was doing and if I could really just be a help to him. One of his responses was, why do you care? Had I took this man's bait to fight, it would have been an awkwardly hostile situation In the front yard of this man's house. And I share this story. Because I know that I'm going to cross paths with this person again. And my hope is to win this man over. Stopped us in our tracks. And Jesus followed through. He did not tell us one time that he loved us. But he came after us. And he continues to come after us. Telling us over and over again. That he loves us and cares for us. And at the same time, we have to remember that Jesus is king, though he's humble and lowly in this picture here. He is mighty and powerful as king. He has power. He has authority. And by his nature, he is high and lifted up. That's what makes this such a paradox. And yet this king has gently looked past your dishonoring him, your hatred of him, and has chosen to make you his own, to make your heart like his heart. Now, how has Jesus won you over? How has Jesus changed your heart to be like his? Life as a follower of Jesus is a life of constantly being won over by Jesus. Being won over by Jesus is what leads us to proper and true worship. And this is what God was after with Israel. They had lost sight of their worship of God. And so God came to win them over. Has Jesus won you over in such a way that it would give you reason to shout Hosanna? Hosanna comes when we see and experience the forgiveness of our king. And just as Jesus won you over, let us make an effort to win one another over with the same love of our king. We win each other over not by going head to head, but by metaphorically laying our hands on each other's shoulders looking beyond the hatred, looking beyond the sin, beyond the mistakes, and looking straight into the heart, longing to win them over with the love of Christ. And I'm not saying dismiss sin, and I'm not saying dismiss the problem, but what I'm saying is looking to the heart of the person and trying to bring them to Christ. What conflicting relationships maybe do you have in your life right now? Do you believe that they can be won over? Do you believe that they're lost or a lost cause, it's beyond repair. Jesus has given you the power to win people over, to win them over. He came with humility. He came with righteousness. He came with power to save. So how might humility or how might living like Jesus and standing firm in your salvation help you turn hostile relationships into loving, peaceful relationships? And I'm not saying you win everyone over, but we must speak and act like Jesus if we are going to have any chance of having meaningful relationships. If you think the hostility is too much or that it's impossible to see any of your hostile relationships turn peaceful, I want you to consider the power and assurance that we have in the work of Christ as we look forward into those verses from Zechariah about the donkey riding Messiah. Messiah. I remember back in in 2001, when the World Trade Centers, World Trade Center towers, were attacked, it sent our nation into shock and really rage all at once. I, I don't know anybody who wasn't upset by it in one way or another, but I do have a vivid remembrance of a cartoon, a picture that came out at that time, and it represented. The anger, the pride, and the power of the American people all at once. It was a picture of a, of a terrorist riding a magic carpet trying to outrun an American fighter jet. Now, I know that sounds comical, but the picture was designed to both insult the enemy and show them that we will wipe them out. Zechariah's description in the Old Testament of the Messiah is no more impressive than that. The Messiah promised is about as intimidating as a man on a magic carpet facing a fighter jet. Listen to Zechariah 9, 10 through 11 again. I will cut off the chariot from a frame. So this is the Messiah sitting on a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from a frame and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this, this Messiah who's sitting on a donkey is going to destroy chariots, is going to destroy powerful horses and powerful bows. And he's going to do it for the purpose of this, to speak peace to the nations and to set prisoners free. And you think about that, what chance does a king on a donkey have against chariots, weapons, or strong horses? The enemies are strong, they're mighty, they're well-resourced, they're strategically capable of wiping out nations, and are well-fortified to keep their prisoners on lock down. And the story sounds an awful lot like the story that we see in the Exodus. Israel was enslaved to the world's strongest ruler and army, the Egyptians. God could have turned his million Israeli slaves into mighty warriors at the blink of an eye. But we learn in that story, God is not like man. The weapons of Egypt really are nothing in comparison. Without dropping a sweat, God delivers his poor, helpless people through the frail leadership of a man named Moses. God displays his power by using a humble leader to deliver a broken, suffering, enslaved people from the world's strongest army. Jesus, a ferocious and holy lion, doesn't come to wage war with us, so to speak. Jesus does not come to wage war with the hypocrites holding the palm branches. He does not come to wage war with the money changers in the temple. He does not come drawing a sword or looking to defend his name or his honor. Jesus, though he is a mighty lion, he comes as a willing, humble lamb to the altar to set the captives free. Jesus comes to win his people over. The enemy wants the people of God to remain enslaved and sees Jesus offering his own life really as an act of foolishness and an opportunity for God's people to remain forever enslaved and perhaps an opportunity for Satan to go from being just a ruler of the air to being a ruler of the heavens. But remember, for our sake, Jesus, who never sinned, would become sin by dying a cursed sinner's death so that we, his very enemies, might become the righteousness of God. Jesus dying on the cross sets the captives free. Jesus sets us free by turning our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And Jesus not only would set our hearts free, but he would take us from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light and a kingdom of righteousness. We would go from enemies from Strangers and aliens to citizens and joint heirs in the kingdom of God. It is this sort of kindness and mercy of God that ultimately leads us to repentance. It is the kindness of God that would eventually lead sinners to say, truly, this was the son of God. The cross is not about God versus Satan. That's ludicrous. Satan has no chance. The cross is about redeeming a people, bringing them back home. One day, Satan, sin, and death will be put to death forever. That day is coming, but not yet. Today, we no longer stand enslaved to sin. We are no longer guilty sinners before God. Because of Jesus, we are now free. We are now righteous and at peace with the Father. Our souls and bodies are slowly but surely going from one degree of glory to another. We still make mistakes. We still sin. But our desire is not to sin, but to live holy for God. And one day we will never sin again and will be perfect before our God. But until then, we cling to the cross. We cling to the kindness that ultimately led us to repentance. And so, yeah, the cross seems risky. The the death of Jesus seems too hard of a pill to swallow. We know the resurrection is coming and yet it seems year after year that the cross is just too foolish, too scandalous, too ridiculous of a thing to save sinners. But God's word gives us assurance that this is the right way. This is the only way. And the reward will ultimately be great. Zechariah in chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, as I had already read. Gives us that assurance in verses 12, really through 17. What we see is this, that this Messiah who comes on the donkey, who defeats his enemies, he will set the prisoners free and those prisoners will be restored, not just restored, but restored double. These prisoners will be saved and and these prisoners in verses 16 and 17 will be restored and saved and become the jewels for his crown. So church, God is restoring you. Even amidst the pandemic, God is restoring his creation. God is taking you and me and he is making us new. You don't have to grow weary at your broken frame. You don't have to be anxious about the virus. You don't have to lose sleep and worry about tomorrow. This world has fallen, but you and I have assurance that God is making all things new. So how might you need to lay aside your worries and your fears this week and look forward to the hope that God is going to restore all things? The people in Zechariah's time were clinging to that hope and it showed up 500 years later. God continues to save us from our sin. Yes, we sin and no, it's not okay. However, Jesus' blood continues to pay for our sin for all time. Jesus's blood does not run out. It does not have an expiration date. There's not a limit to how many of our sins Jesus would pay for. He pays for them all. And this leads us not to want to sin more, but to want to live a life completely for him. So do you wrestle with whether or not God forgives you of sin that you've committed? You feel like, man, I was, a, I was a good Christian for a time. I was really rocking it out. And then all of a sudden I made this mistake. And now God just, I know he doesn't love me anymore. I know he wants me to earn his favor. Do you believe that you, are, you have the ability to out sin the grace of God? Do you think if Jesus would forgive the sins of those who welcomed him as Messiah and later cried for his crucifixion, don't you think he would also forgive you? Maybe someone sinned against you that you have not forgiven. Today is the day to extend the forgiveness of Christ to others as he has extended forgiveness to you. Perhaps it's time to show your enemy that they too can become sons and daughters of God. And look, we are the jewels of God's crown. We are the jewels of King Jesus' crown. So we must take great courage and strength to know that though Jesus humbly approached the cross, he did so not doing so with a chip on his shoulder. He didn't go, man, I'll take this one the chin, but rest assured these sinners are going to pay. Jesus wants to endure the cross for you and me. And he does. Jesus wants to give his life. It's a joy for him to endure the cross. And so Jesus considers us as valuable, as worth having in the kingdom of God. After all, when God created us, he he didn't create us because he was in need, but because he wanted us to enjoy him forever. When a king walks into a room, what do people notice? Of the many things they notice, they notice his crown. It's, It's standout, right? It's paramount when he walks in the room. The crown signifies power, royalty, authority, right to the throne. And as the jewels of Jesus' crown, we join him in his work on the cross. We join him in his victory over death. We join him in his resurrection. And while we are not the king, do not mistake, we do get to enjoy the benefits of the king who is seated on the throne. All the angels and all the heavenly beings will look at the jewels of Jesus' crown and say, "Worthy is the Lamb who was slain." So come, sinners and saints, lay yourself at the feet of the King. Come to his throne of grace, expecting his mercy and his forgiveness. The King, full of power, promises, assures you that he is not that his work is not done. He assures you he is seated on his throne, making his enemies your enemies, your sin, your shame, your guilt, your anxieties, a footstool for his feet. King Jesus assures you that you are at peace with him, and one day he will return to bring you home. So let us go today, anchored in the hope of the Savior, who did not cower away from the cross, but pursued its shame and suffering with great passion to take away the sins of the world.